Uh, folks, if you want to take your seats, we'll get started. Can open up your Bibles to First Peter. We'll be there today. We're so glad we have this wonderful book that God's given to us, written by the hands of men as God led them by the power of the Spirit, so that these words that we look at are the very words of God, and as such have power for life, have power for us as God's people, as we look to Him. So we're more than just looking at a a cool book that's wonderful literature. It is all that. We're actually preparing to hear from God Himself through His Word. And actually, this will be the last message in our series from 1 Peter. We've been in 1 Peter since, I think, January. So this is the last one. And we will uh, take the next uh, month or so to do a mini-series on... uh, what the Bible says to address the question, can I trust God? So we'll be looking at what the Word teaches us about that, really looking at the character of God that makes Him trustworthy and the truths that make Him trustworthy. So we'll spend a little time doing that in September, the rest of August. And then, um, actually we have a new members Sunday coming up, the second Sunday in September. We have a number of new members being added to our church. It's always a wonderful time, so we'll take time then to talk about membership, what the Bible says about membership. And then in October, we'll start a new series that will take us for a while, I think past the new year and on, on the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount, learning from our Lord there. But for now, we're finishing up First Peter, and today we'll be looking at Peter's concluding remarks and greetings, really where Peter sums up the entire letter. So as we go to to the Lord as we go to listen to His Word. Let's go before Him in prayer, asking Him to speak to us through the reading and hearing and preaching of God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You just for who You are, God. You are God who who speaks. You are God who, in Your glory, You share Your glory and You welcome us in to behold You, to enjoy You, to live in You and for You. Lord, there's nothing better than that. And we thank You, Lord, that through Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit, we experience these things. We grow in grace. We grow in the knowledge of Christ. And we are transformed and and we're empowered and equipped to live for You and to love others in Your name. Thank You, Lord. Thank You that You're very interested in being with us as we look at Your Word. And that's what we ask, O God. Come and be with us. Speak to us. We recognize that We are not worthy to be before You. You are so good and holy that we could not approach You on our own. But We have an Advocate, Jesus Christ, and His righteousness, His death and resurrection who leads us into Your presence. We thank You, Jesus, for forgiveness and grace. And now, Lord, bring us into Your presence and speak to us. Make us like You. Glorify Your name. Bless others through us. Through this time we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12-14. to 14. As Peter concludes, 
He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 1 Peter 5, 12-14 Well, it's been wonderful, at least for me, I trust for you as well, to go through this masterpiece of a letter. Um, I know for me, I've been affected by the shoes here. I've heard from many of you as well. Uh, God has spoken to us through His Word and taught us truths and I believe changed lives. And I'm so thankful for that. It shouldn't surprise me. It's God's Word and He is good and powerful. But uh, it has been a blessing. Don't worry if you aren't here for the whole series though. Uh, today in many ways is the Spark Notes version of First Peter, the Cliff's Notes version of First Peter, because in these last sentences, Peter really sums up the entire, the entire letter. The core of this particular paragraph we're looking at summarizes the letter. So we'll get to learn from this and really learn from what the entire book says. There are a lot of ideas out there a lot of ideas out there about what it means to be a Christian, what the Christian life is about. There are a lot of ideas of what it means to be a successful Christian. If we were to go out and do a survey and walk around on the street and ask people, what do you think uh, it means to be a successful Christian? What is the, kind of the, the essence of being a Christian? We'd get lots of different answers, wouldn't we? Some might say that to be a Christian means you need to be doing good deeds, doing good things. You need to help the poor or the downtrodden. And those are, those are good things, and certainly that's part of being a Christian, an important part. Some might say you need to pray a lot and read your Bible and go to church and do other religious things to be a successful Christian. That's what a Christian is, and elements of that are very much a part. Others might say, well, a Christian needs to love like Jesus. And that would be a good answer. But Peter answers that slightly differently. Certainly he would assume many of those questions and answers. But he answers slightly different than that. What Peter says in this passage and what he says in the book of First Peter is that a Christian, a successful Christian, is someone who lives as an elect exile. We've talked about that in our series. I'll explain that later as well. An elect exile who stands firm in the grace of God. A successful Christian lives as an elect exile who stands firm in the grace of God. And that's what I want to talk about today in reverse order. I want to talk about the grace of God. And how Peter calls us to stand firm in the grace of God. If we're going to understand what to do, we need to know what is the grace of God? What is this true grace of God? What is Peter talking about? And I'm going to spend time talking about what it means to stand firm in the grace of God. And then we'll finish up with looking at what it means to be an elect exile. Just to first answer a little bit about some of the other aspects of this paragraph, we're going to look at the core, which is the latter part of 12 in the, in the, in verse, the beginning of verse 13. 
Peter says a few other things in there, and just to satisfy your curiosity, uh, I want to answer a little bit. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Peter is summarizing here, and he's talking about this guy Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. Uh, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that this is most likely Silas. And Silas was active in ministering and laboring with Paul. And apparently he continued on after Paul was gone, probably at this point, ministering with Peter. And Silas was involved in church planting and part of a church planting team. And so Peter mentions his name because he says, By Silvanus, the faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. He commends Silas. Because Silas is most likely the person who's actually delivering this letter to the churches. He's just not kind of on a, I like Silas kick. You know, I just want to throw in there that I like Silas. He's, he's actually preparing the people to receive Silas. Uh, helping them as they hear the letter to receive Silas. Silas most likely is bringing the letter and probably reading it to the congregations, to the churches, throughout the house, homes and so forth, and explaining its content. So he's more than just a guy that's a, a, you know, a mailman. He's probably delivering and helping communicate because he is a leader uh, along with Peter. And most likely when Peter says he's helping, helped me write this, it may mean that he helped actually do the writing. That may be part of it. Or I think more likely, given that he's commending him, he helped in the writing and the, the delivering of the letter to the churches. So Peter wants to, wants to make sure that these churches get the full impact. So he, he asks has a godly man help him and bring the letter to this area so they might know these truths. So that's what Paul's talking about in that section. It's interesting, Paul says, I've written briefly to you, uh, exhorting and teaching you. Uh, if this is brief, a brief letter, I don't know what a long letter would be like. It might be really long. Um, but Peter, Peter has gone on for some bit. He calls it a brief letter. Uh, it's interesting what brief can mean at different times. We live in the age of uh, twi- Twitter and sound bites and stuff, so brief for us is very brief. Uh, anyone know how many characters are allowed on Twitter? Anyone know what Twitter is? <laughs> Twitter is a communication. It's 150 characters. So we live in this age where can I say something profound in 150 characters? And most of the time we don't say anything that profound in 150 characters. Peter didn't live in that day. I, I think he'd lo- use Twitter if he were around, but... but uh, but there's more to say than what can be said in 150 characters here. So he's, uh, he's writing this letter. And at the end of the, the letter, after, at the end of the paragraph, after the section we're going to focus on, he brings, greetings from, uh, he brings greetings from the church. We'll talk about that. Babylon, code word for the church in Rome. Uh, she who was at Babylon. And then he just asks them, uh, he brings greetings from Mark, his son, spiritual son, I believe. And then calls them to greet one another with uh, the kiss of love. And that's a traditional family greeting of affection in that culture. So he's saying as God's people, we should treat each other as family and greet each other like family would. Uh, and then blesses them with peace. But with, with that kind of cover, let's dive into the middle where Peter talks about living as elect, exiles, standing firm on the grace of God. First, the grace of God. Grace is such a wonderful word. Beautiful word, a beautiful concept, much used, but often much confused in our culture. We tend to think of grace as some ability. Uh, so someone who is an exceptional athlete has a special grace, or someone who is an artist has a grace for art, or someone who is gracious 
has a particular talent in relating socially and so forth. We tend to think of it as that, and in some sense, the Scripture uses it that way, but that's really not how Peter is using this word grace. The biblical use of the word is slightly different. Grace in the New Testament is not so much about an ability as about an undeserved gift. So when he's speaking of the true grace of God to the to his readers, he's not speaking of their ability. He's not bringing the focus to them. He's bringing the focus to God. Grace is not something inherent in his readers. It is outside of them, in God. So he's pointing them to grace, to this gift, to unmerited favor from God. And he does it throughout the whole book, really, without necessarily using the word grace all the time. This whole book, if you remember, we started... He spends the first chapter calling their attention to God and His grace. Calling their attention to what God has done. How God has acted. How God has been gracious. So, I think we have some of these verses to put up, friend. Uh, Chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he goes on in that first chapter just just talking about God's grace. That in His mercy, He has chosen to to deal with our sins and, and, and be kind to us when we didn't deserve it. And He's poured out grace and given us this inheritance in Christ through faith. God alone is the one who's acting here. He says later, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's speaking of God's activity. God in His mercy has done all these things. God has acted when we didn't and couldn't in our sin and sending His Son to rescue us from our sin and to fulfill all His promises and to fulfill His justice. So grace is about unmerited favor from God. All the activity here in these verses and much throughout is activity of God, not of us. When mentioning our activity... Certainly, He calls us to certain things as a result of grace, but, but our activity is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 24, For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We, in and of ourselves, were strained away from God. We, we were running away from God. The Scriptures teach us clearly nobody seeks God. Apart from God, nobody seeks God. And so... We were running the other way. And some of us run in different ways. Some have run in very rebellious, open ways. Some have run in in subtle ways. Some have run from God by creating religious ways to relate to Him. So we can relate to Him on our own terms. That's still running from Him. There's nobody, nobody who has sought God. But God is gracious. And He reaches out and grabs hold of people. 
and opens their eyes to see His mercy and His love and His graciousness in Christ. Gives us the power to, to understand this is the best thing I could ever have. To be reconciled to God through Christ. To live for Him. And gives us that ability to respond. That's grace. An unmerited gift. Unmerited favor from God. And Peter wants to call his readers, and God through Peter wants to call us to live in grace. The default for humanity in our sinful condition, our fallen condition, is not to live by grace. We will find ourselves all the time going back to trying to earn our way before God and before others. Grace is contrary to our natural inclinations. So Peter calls them to, to come back and stand firm in the grace of God. God calls us through this wonderful book to stand firm in the grace of God. His activity. His goodness. His faithfulness. His mercy. That's our ground upon which we stand. A successful Christian stands firm in the grace of God. A successful Christian lives in the grace of God. A successful Christian treasures the grace of God. A successful Christian relies on the grace of God, thinks about the grace of God, celebrates the grace of God, finds his or her motivation in the grace of God. A successful Christian is defined by the grace of God. So Peter wants us to know that as he concludes this letter. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the story of Larry Trapp who in 1992 as a former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan made national headlines when he renounced his hatred, tore down the Nazi flags, and destroyed his many cartons of hate literature. Trapp had been won over by the forgiving love of a Jewish cantor and his family. Though Trapp had sent them vile pamphlets, mocking big-nosed Jews and denying the Holocaust, though he had threatened violence in phone calls made to their home, though he had targeted their synagogue for bombing, the Cantor's family consistently responded with compassion and concern. Diabetic since childhood, Trapp was confined to a wheelchair and rapidly going blind. They invited Trapp into their home to care for him. He says, they showed me such love that I couldn't help but love them back, Trapp later said. He spent the last months of his life seeking forgiveness from Jewish groups, the NAACP and the many individuals he hated. Larry Trapp found himself redefined by the grace of that Jewish family and their love and their kindness that was undeserved he found himself redefined and made into a new person. So he spent the latter part of his life living totally different. You and I are like Larry Trapp. In one way or another, apart from God, we have spurned and hated him and rejected him. And he has done more than merely invite us to live in his house to enjoy his love. He has indeed done that. He's given the precious life of His only Son for us. He didn't just invite us to live in the house. He gave 
His eldest Son, His only Son, His precious Son for us. To cleanse us from all our sins. To grant us full and eternal life. His Son, His precious Son, who, who's lived in the house with Him forever. They've had sweet relationship from eternity past. This precious Son that He gave died the death we deserve that we might enjoy the life that He deserves. That is grace. Successful Christians live by the grace of God. The true grace in Christ and the truth of Christ and all that comes with it that will never fail and flows from the very heart of God. This true grace of God must define us. It must be how we live. Successful Christians live in and by the true grace of God. Next. Successful Christians stand firm in the true grace of God. Peter calls us to stand firm in this true grace of God. We've just talked about grace, right? We know that grace is a free gift. It comes from the character of God and His goodness. It's free to us entirely. All we do is respond, and even that response we learn in Scripture is of grace as well. It's of grace from beginning to end. It's free. It costs Him much. Oh, so very much. But it's free to us. All we need to do is by grace respond in faith. Turning from sin and trusting in this wonderful, amazing grace. So it's totally free. Given by God, from God. We don't contribute anything to grace. But then Peter asks us to stand firm in this free gift. He calls us to action, doesn't he? Stand firm in it. Doesn't it kind of seem like a little bit of an oxymoron or some sort of paradox? I thought it was free. I thought this was a gift. I thought it was freely given and it didn't have to do with my activity. It's given to me. So why would I be called to stand firm then? I don't get that. And at times, Christians can be confused by what seems like a paradox. Bradley Nussif, uh, evangelical theologian of the Eastern Orthodox Church, answers this well, I believe. He says, Grace is opposed to to merit. Grace is opposed to merit. We can never earn grace because as soon as we earn it, it's not grace. It's a free gift. Freely given. Grace is opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to effort. It is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to effort. This concise statement resolves this apparent oxymoron. Grace is indeed an unmerited blessing from God. Christ alone lived the perfect life. Christ alone lived the perfect life to the point of death on the cross. His, his perfection, His righteousness in life is not just how He lived when He kind of ministered and obeyed His parents as a youth and so forth, but it, was, it climaxed in His death on the cross. His righteous life and His death go together. He obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ alone did that. No one here 
will ever obey God, has ever obeyed God like that in the least degree. Christ alone did that. Christ alone obeyed completely, flawlessly, faithfully. He alone deserves eternal life. He alone has earned favor with God and His perfections. He alone offers us life to grant us forgiveness. He alone is worthy. None of us have earned anything but estrangement from our good and glorious God. There is not substantial merit in you or me. So it's by grace alone. We come to the Father by grace alone, purchased by the Son alone. But this grace, though it is opposed to merit because we could never merit it, Christ alone merits favor with the Father. It's entirely free. It is not opposed to effort. Grace is not inactive in a believer. Grace is very active in a believer. And it's a sign that genuine grace is at work if there is activity. Larry Trapp was affected by the grace of that family. And it affected his mind and his heart and it resulted in what? Activity. He went and asked for forgiveness. He became an advocate. He was active. Grace creates activity in us. Grace is a gift, but it isn't a gift that makes for passive and lazy believers. That's a contradiction to grace. Grace so affects us and transforms us that it motivates us to great activity for the Lord. And if you are a Christian who is struggling with being diligent and following the Lord, don't just crank it up and say, I've got to be more diligent. Go back to grace and understand grace. Know His grace, and from grace comes motivation. It was the love of that Jewish family that motivated Larry Trout. How much more the love and grace of God in Christ for us to motivate activity in us. So Peter is right to call us to stand firm, to respond to this grace, to stand on the grace, to find our life in the grace of God. To define ourselves by the grace. To rely on the grace of God. To be active and living in the grace of God. Recently, we came back from our vacation and as a family, we love to hike in the White Mountains. There's thousands of hikes up there and, uh, with all sorts of beauty. Great vistas, waterfalls. We like to go to the, the ones that have a place to swim. Ponds. Uh, beautiful spruce forests. Every now and then we might see a wild animal, but usually we're too noisy walking through the woods, but we love to hike. Some of the hikes are, can get pretty mucky and wet. And usually when we're going along a trail that's mucky and wet, they have some sort of boardwalk or planks to walk on of some sort. And when it's especially swampy, like some of the hikes go through bogs, there are boardwalks, really nice walkways, right? You guys know what a boardwalk is. Nice walkways with railings. Some places, some boardwalks even have little benches on them and everything. The boardwalks are a great blessing. We, we didn't build any boardwalks, but we get to enjoy the boardwalks. They're a gift to us. We get to enjoy them. Given to us by someone else, someone else's effort. But even though they are a gift to us, we still have to choose whether we're going to walk on the boardwalk or not. When we go through the bogs, we could decide for some crazy reason we just don't want to stay on the boardwalk. 
I just want to walk through five feet of muck on this hike. I don't want the boardwalk. Or we could think, you know, I just, I just want, to, I want to dive off the boardwalk and do a belly flop in the muck just to see how it feels. I must make a choice to stay on that boardwalk and not jump in the muck. My standing firm on the boardwalk is ultimately no credit to me. It's really a compliment to the person that made the boardwalk. I get to enjoy the fruit of that person's efforts. Peter commands us to stay on the boardwalk of God's grace. And this boardwalk is better than any old boardwalk. The analogy falls short. The metaphor falls short because God's boardwalk is more than just a plain boardwalk. God's boardwalk is full of blessing because He's there with us on the boardwalk. And He's infinitely glorious and good. And this boardwalk we get to walk on is full of relationship with Him. The most amazing, exciting, and intriguing being we could ever know. And with His people. And in serving Him. It's full of sights and sounds and experiences that are more exciting than anything we could ever anticipate or imagine. So it's more than just a plain boardwalk. It's kind of like what the Hampton Beach boardwalk becomes in September when they have the annual seafood fest. I love seafood. And in September, they, have, they open it up, that area up, and they have a seafood fest full of great seafood and entertainment. That's kind of what the boardwalk of God is like. It's not a boring boardwalk. It's full of blessing in Him. Now, sometimes that blessing is, comes in forms we may not like, and First Peter talks much of that. Sometimes the blessing comes through trials. Sometimes the boardwalk is hard. And not comfortable, but it is always a boardwalk in the grace of God. We are supposed to stand firm on that. Why would you jump off the boardwalk? Hiking through the block. Why would you leave the boardwalk and go into the muck? You would have to be kind of crazy to do that, wouldn't you? Why jump off and jump into the muck? Why abandon the boardwalk? It doesn't make sense. I think we'd have to be delusional, really, to jump off the boardwalk and swim in the muck. I don't know. I prefer actually to be in the muck. Thank you. I'll stay here. It doesn't make sense, and it shouldn't make sense. But we do it, don't we? We jump off the boardwalk. We do sometimes headfirst dives into the muck. And, and just kind of wallow around in it, loving it. You know, take a bath in the muck. This is great. It feels great. And then after a while, you know, when you're stinky and smelly enough, you're like, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Maybe I should get back on the boardwalk. We do it all the time. And, and most likely, uh, well, definitely, for all of us this week and probably even today, we've been off the boardwalk in the muck. And for some of us, perhaps we've been wallowing in the muck this week in a way we know we shouldn't. Maybe for some of us would even really enjoy being in the muck this week. God doesn't want us to be in the muck. He wants us to be and live in the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. But we will at times do something that makes no sense. We'll jump off the boardwalk and live in the muck. And there's really only one reason why you do that. 
for all of us. There's only one reason why you ever leave the boardwalk. And that is because you think it's better off the boardwalk. You think it's better off the boardwalk. You think there's something in the muck that is appealing. Something there that's good and healthy for you. And we think it's better for three reasons, I think, among perhaps others. One is we can be deceived. We deceive ourselves. We see, we see mirages off in the bog. We're walking on the boardwalk and our little path, and all of a sudden we see something off there. Oh, look at that. That's beautiful. We deceive ourselves. We think we see some sort of shape or you know, a, something, a brand new car there in the muck. I want that. And we, we jump off the boardwalk. We deceive ourselves. That's one reason. Sometimes we doubt the truth. There really is no boardwalk. There's just the swamp. It, it, I just don't think. And sometimes that, that doubt is, is, comes from different reasons. I'll get into that. We doubt. And so we leave the boardwalk. Sometimes we just simply have not gone deep enough into the wonder of the boardwalk. So I just want to talk about those three things. Being deceived, doubting, and not going deep enough. We are deceived sometimes. We think there's something better than standing firm on the boardwalk of God's grace. So things like uh, pornography tempt us. It's better here. Look at these images. You'll feel good. You'll feel good about yourself. You'll feel empowered. Whatever the lie might be, there's a deception there. Come off the boardwalk. It's better over here. Life is exciting. It could be a relationship. Some of the things that are there are not necessarily inherently evil. I would say for the most part pornography is, but there are things that aren't always inherently evil in and of themselves that we see outside in the muck and we go for. Drugs, alcohol, there can be things like that. Temporary pleasure. Or it could be things like relationships, a job, comfort. The problem is we look at these things and we deceive ourselves and we say it's better to have this without God than to have God. We are deceived. That's a lie. And we know better sooner or later. But the best thing to do is to learn to know better ahead of time rather than after the fact. Right? God doesn't leave us alone. He's given us His Word. He's given us friendship. He's given us prayer, the power of the Spirit and all these things. He's given us good books. He's given us all these things so that we may avoid that deception. There's still a battle though. When you're at that moment and you see the you see the whatever thing out there in the muck, there's a battle to say, you know what? That isn't worth it. That isn't as good as what I have now. Now I may not I may not know what I have now in the fullness that I should, but at least I can remember from last mistake I made that I know that's not worth it. So I'm not gonna give in. Call up a friend. Help me. I'm struggling. I'm tempted with this deception. We can be deceived. We can also doubt the truth for some reason. Maybe a trial. Maybe persecution. Peter is writing to a church that's persecuted. They're under pressure. The world is in a very aggressive way saying, conform to us. Don't keep on doing that stuff. That Jesus stuff. Living for Him. That's not the way. That From their friends or their relatives perhaps, there's pressure Sometimes because of persecution or trial. Maybe we're going through a hard time or, or the world looks, is, is pressuring us. 
Sometimes even the devil himself will pressure us and we'll doubt. We'll doubt that all this stuff about Jesus and the Gospel and eternal life is true. And we'll quickly look for alternatives that are more real to us, if that's the case. So we can doubt. We don't think it's true. And, and the way God has made us, we always need to find something to put our faith in. Everybody puts their faith somewhere. Everyone, everyone believes something and, and lives by that something. So when we doubt, if we remain there, we'll quickly find something that seems realer than that thing we doubt. So we can think of the stuff out in the muck is a lot realer. So I'm going to live for that. Sometimes we go off the boardwalk because we're just bored of the stuff on the boardwalk. We've been there, done that. Christianity, yep, known it. Yeah, the Gospel, heard that. And I think this is particularly a temptation for, for those who have grown up in Christian homes. Um, not always, but it can be stronger there, partly, uh, partly because maybe you haven't been out in the world in the way that you've seen the muck and mire. Uh, and you've been around the things of God for a long time and you take them for granted. And it can be that been there, done that, heard that. I know God loves me. I heard that stuff about Christ. Been around it. And I would say that what's happened, and whether you're a youth, adult who's grown up, or whether you're a believer who maybe has come from the most dramatically awful background and been saved, we can still do that. We can still think, been there, done that. We get bored of being on the boardwalk. And I would say the reason is, is that we have not gone deep enough in the truth. We have not gone deep enough in the wonder of grace. We have not gone deep enough in the wonder of being forgiven. We've forgotten what it means to have all our sins washed away. We've forgotten what it means to be reconciled to God. We've forgotten what it means to have the Spirit in us and to walk with God's people. We've neglected thankfulness perhaps. We've neglected good study of good theology to go deeper in the wonders of the cross and of grace. And so it becomes mundane. And so we think, well, at least getting off the boardwalk is not boring. And so we leave the boardwalk. Doubt, not going deep enough. Deceit can be ways. The answer for all three ultimately is the same. It is Jesus Christ who is more than enough for us. Through His Word, by the power of the Spirit, He wants us to see and savor Him and find our joy in Him and, and glory in the grace of God. And He gives us many avenues to experience that and to be refreshed. The Word, prayer, friendship and fellowship with Christians where we keep the Gospel central. Small groups, men's fellowship, ladies' fellowship, all these different avenues. Good books. Prayer walks. For me, prayer walks are so key. There's times when I find myself tempted to go off the boardwalk, I just have to get some time with the Lord, go for a walk and talk to Him. And He meets me in those things. There's many avenues, means of grace, where He refreshes us. When you recognize that you're going off the boardwalk, you need to run to Him and ask Him for help to counteract doubt, deceit, and not going deep enough. That you might treasure His grace more than anything. To see and savor Him. To find your life there. Successful Christians stand firm in the grace of God. 
And finally, successful Christians live as elect exiles. Peter finishes this letter saying, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon, it looks like in Scripture, it was code for Rome. Babylon it was a real place in Scripture, but it was a place where the, where the powers of this world held sway. It was a, a worldly power, a worldly power center. It was a, the center of the kingdom of man without God at the center. So Babylon serves as a template throughout Scripture and throughout history of mankind without God, the power center of mankind without God. Rome was that in that day. So Peter's using that to say he's in Rome and she who is likewise chosen is the church in Rome, most likely. So Peter is greeting them, saying, she who is in Babylon who is likewise chosen greets you. The chosen church greets you. The elect exiles greet you. Do you remember how he started his letter? Using really the same words. Those, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, he says right in the beginning, Peter's bringing us back to this truth. That part of being a successful Christian is living in light of the fact that we are elect exiles. We are elect. Where elect is not a word we use apart from voting perhaps, but elect means to be chosen. And this is a theme throughout Peter. It's a theme throughout Scripture. The emphasis on the fact that God in His grace chooses us. If you belong to Him, yes, you indeed have responded in faith and repentance. You have responded to Him. You've been active in that. But behind that is the grace of God in your life drawing you. You would not have come if He had not drawn you. And He drew you because He set His affections on you. And actually, Scripture teaches us before time began, He said, this one, I'm going to rescue from his foolishness and rebellion. I choose this one. So to be a believer is to be chosen, to be beloved of God. And that's not meant as an exclusive term. Because also in Scripture it says, whosoever will, let him come. He'll never turn away anyone who comes to him. But even the coming is a gift of him, his grace, choosing us. And to be a believer is to be chosen and to live in that reality. Part of the wonder of grace is that God has acted in my life and chosen me. And that's my foundation. Is His choice in His grace to rescue me. I'm an elect exile. We are an elect exile. We are chosen, beloved of God. That's part of our identity. But we're elect exiles. We're chosen, but in Babylon. And this has been a theme throughout 1 Peter. God wants us to know both these things. A successful Christian lives as an elect exile standing firm in the grace of God. We live as elect exiles cherishing and celebrating the fact that in His grace He's chosen and rescued us. That's where we find our life. But also recognizing we live in a world that is Babylon, is foreign to God, is largely hostile to God. Yes, there's much good. We mustn't forget that. But amidst the good is this brokenness and confusion and rebellion. And it all gets jumbled up and forms a culture that is just all over the place. We live amidst that. And we live amidst a world that is broken. We live as elect exiles.
And it's been providential that the past seven months for us as a church has been a poignant experience of this reality. We've tasted the wonder of grace, the faithfulness of God, but we have tasted it amidst trial. You guys who are members and regular attendees here know what the last seven months represent. Three of our church family with cancer. Two being healed in some measure, yet one taken, but taken as he stood firm in the grace of God. We've lived amidst economic tumult and hard times to some degree, some of us losing jobs or underemployed. We've lived amidst, amidst the reality of the shortness of life for our family members. I know of at least two parents of, family, of church members who have struggled with cancer. One of our family members, church family members, lost a mother. We've had health crises. We've had crises at home. We've lived in a broken world for the past seven months. We've lived amidst the trials of life. They come in different shapes, some more serious, some bittersweet, saying goodbye to the many seminary graduates who were such a part of our family for the two or three years they were with us, saying goodbye to a dear sister today, Part of living in this world means being separated at times. We must keep these truths in tension. We live as elect exiles, standing firm in the grace of God. We live as elect exiles in this world, belonging to God. And one day, we'll no longer be exiles. One day we'll be with Him, in His presence, with all His people and all the tears will be wiped away. Amen. We are elect exiles. Standing firm in the grace of God. If the band could come forward as we close this morning. Thank God for this precious book and the truths in it that change our lives, that define our lives. Thank God for this wonderful summary in the end. And the truth is of that we as Christians are called to live as elect exiles, standing firm in the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You. We thank You for the grace that comes from You. What would we do without Your grace, O God? What would we do? We just thank You that You have acted this grace comes from who You are. You're good and gracious. And we thank You. We thank You for life in You that we can stand firm in this grace. Lord, help us to stay on the boardwalk together as Your people and to invite many others up as well. Lord, there's so many out there swimming in the muck and mire who need to see. Would You use us, Lord, to bring many to see Your grace and live in it? And would You give us wisdom to live in this world as elect exiles? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in song.